title here is Escaping the Perversion of the Law of Sin and Death. And actually in this section of Galatians, he's doing something parallel to what Paul's doing, something that he does in Romans. And in a way, the two passages, uh, of the two passages, this one brings great clarity uh, to what he's doing in Romans. I'll, let me just read verse 17, but as I go through it, I'll read from the rest of uh, Galatians chapter 5, if you kind of want to hold on to that chapter. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And this split, then, between flesh and spirit, characterizes the person under the law. And the antagonism between flesh and spirit is itself the problem. In other words, don't get the idea here that it's either the spirit or the flesh, either one, but rather it's the antagonism. It's the split between the two. Uh, And it's the split alienated relationship, uh, the law of the mind, the law of the flesh, as Paul puts it in Romans 7, that are antagonistic to one another. What's happening, I think, in the false teaching in Galatia is that this Gnostic Christianity, or maybe a slightly Judaized Christianity, is going to increase the antagonism. And I think that's what happens in a wrong understanding here. That's what Paul's describing in both Galatians and Romans, that instead of having relief from the antagonism, the the law just intensifies it. And the more we engage the problem, the more intensified the antagonism. And so the form of Christianity that would pit the spirit against the flesh as if that's the normal problem is missing that no that's the problem of the law and I think many of us in Christianity misunderstand the nature of the problem you know if you're going to as I said last time if you're going to manipulate an organ if you're going to manipulate a mountain a city a principle a law uh, this is going to disempower you this is Paul's point about circumcision. You know, the, the Judaizers are saying, why don't you get circumcised? And Paul says, oh, just cut the whole thing off. Uh, it, it's very blunt language, but what he's saying is, well, you're just disempowering yourself. Um, the Mosaic law, the, the Jerusalem, Sinai, is, is not the key. And those who pursue righteousness through the law is his point in Galatians, they've fallen back into the works of the flesh. And in this list here, you know, notice in the list that he gives us in Galatians that at the top of the list is the problem of human sexuality. Uh, that, uh, think here of the, uh, the, the sexual failing is the human failing. In some way that's, very much marked, marks the, the problem today, doesn't it? But 
I think that in a kind of perverse Christianity, this comes out. Think of Jimmy Swaggart or the Bakers or, you know, just one scandal after another. Why is that always the failure? Well, I think the precise problem is that there is a poor theology, there's a bad theology that's given rise to this perverse Christianity that's misunderstanding the problem. And so if we misunderstand the problem, we're going to fall back into the same kind of perversion. It's a Christianity focused on a kind of Gnostic or you know, going to heaven when you die. And it remains infatuated with the sins of the flesh. So a preaching that is weighed down with a kind of legalistic moralism, in fact, may betray a fascination with the imagined enjoyment. You know, just think of Jimmy Swaggart all sweaty and up there preaching against those evil homosexuals. And, and then he's going out and doing the same thing. Uh the idea is that there is a kind of focus on this transgressive pleasure that I think they're, they're misunderstanding. Uh, the, the preacher or the teacher focused on these terrible sins may betray his notion that these others, these, you know, these playboy types, these all these homosexuals or these whatever he's talking about, there's often a kind of imagined uh, idea. Oh, they're they're grabbing all the gusto, you know. They're uh, and so there's a misunderstanding that is a perverse underside to law keeping, and that's what Paul is warning about. The Pharisees weigh men down, and they weigh men down in a way that's pleasurable to them. Think of the prostitute, you know, before the two prostitutes before Solomon. They each want the baby. The prostitute uh, that is following the law, you know, when Solomon says, oh, let's cut the baby in two. She's following the letter of the law in a very perverse way. Um, You remember, did you read, you know, Shakespeare, Shylock, that he wants his pound of flesh. It's a very anti-Semitic sort of play, but the point is well taken. That there is a perverse underside, there's a perverse pleasure in extracting the pound of the of flesh through the works of the law. Think of Nazi death camp guards. You know, do you think they enjoyed their work of torture and murder? I think they did. They enjoyed the perverse underside of the law. You know, think of anyone who that is a strict lawkeeper. And what they're doing is what Jesus says, you're weighing men down with burdens that you yourself cannot carry. And it offers then the perverse manipulation and oppression of other people. Um, we We just saw a movie, it's called Loving. And it's about the first interracial couple that was in, where was it, Alabama? Virginia. And, you know, they, uh, they get married and it's illegal. But, of course, the, the thing about the local police is they enjoy, you know, just the, the eager enjoyment of enforcing the law and putting Mrs. Loving in, in jail. Uh, and 
Thing, you know, I, uh, this was, I'm, I had a sort of silly military career. Uh, I was in 90 days, so uh, I was a chaplain. But we did, we kind of did pretend military. And we even did the pretend, mar- you know, we marched and we would sing the songs. And even with the chaplains, the songs that they would have us sing, David knows this well, he's an old military guy. The, the songs we would sing, there was always a kind of perverseness to them. Even as even the chaplains, they would have us sing these songs. Uh, that there is this underside to the law, the underside to a kind of institution that follows the law. Those who most readily inflict pain on others with the backing of institutions, whatever those institutions are they may experience extreme levels of pleasure in doing that. Uh, You know, the smile on the face who someone, someone, it it is irresistible as they inflict the worst sorts of pain on people because they have the backing of knowing they are in the right. That's in quotation marks, right? So the problem Paul struggles is with how to avoid the trap of perversion of the law. A law that generates its own transgression. A law that is transgressive, in fact, in the keeping. And that's the way that Paul is presenting the law. It's generating a kind of transgressive desire. You know, the law says you shall not covet. But in the very command is already the rise that gives rise to covetousness. Uh, There is a bind that is put upon us. And the only way out of this bind, I mean, I think we've got to see the problem and how pervasive the problem is. And I think that's what Paul is doing in both Romans and Galatians. The only way out of the problem is to completely reconstitute the human subject. You shall not covet, you know, it creates what it prescribes. Bonhoeffer puts it, in this way, and let me explain the quote after I, I say it. Man at his origin knows only one thing, God. It is only in the unity of his knowledge of God that he knows of other men, of things, and of himself. What Bonhoeffer is describing is the original relationship to God is the way that Adam and Eve understood the world. And the fall is the sense in which they are going to be the arbiters of their own ethic, their own knowing. They're going to become the center of their ethic. And that's what the law is doing. I think even, you know, the prohibition in the garden, the the prohibition in Exodus, that what the law is doing is showing our perverse orientation to the law in which we would even take the law of God And make it our own. Imagine that there's life in the law. The knowledge of good and evil is an alternative knowing and an alternative being, uh, you know, way to know God. Instead of knowing himself in the origin of God, Bonhoeffer says, he must know himself as an origin. I think that's the predicament. That's the problem. That is, instead of seeing things in and through the lens of God or the reconstituted understanding through Christ, the idea is that we are the arbiters. 
And the point here, Paul you know, says that neither male nor female, slave nor free, there is a new way of doing identity in which it's not this self-binding, oppositional way of doing identity, but all of these things, gender, marriage, birth, family, they're lifted up and they're rightly understood against the larger story of the marriage between Christ and the church. Otherwise, you're left attempting to manipulate the flesh. So too, the entirety of the eye is lifted up. We're to understand who we are in and through the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's the resolution to the problem. And he wants the the Galatians to avoid what he calls the works of the flesh. In other words, he's not giving them a moralistic kind of sermon here but he calls them to the fruit of the spirit and this is very much different than a kind of moralistic exhortation but it's an argument about the law and about how though the law is God's law it cannot give the thing to which it points and about how nevertheless those who discover that to which it points are in line with what the law intended they are still not the possessors of the thing that it points to. In other words, the Jews are good Jews. They're keepers of the law, but the law has not delivered them from sin and death. And that's the whole point of the law. The law disempowers. It emasculates. It does not bring about the circumcision of the heart. Paul says in 2.19, remember, for through the law I died to the law. So that I might live to Christ. That I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So what is the precise dynamic that is undone in this death of the I? Paul says the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. So that you may do the things that you, you, you not do the things that you please. This sounds so much like Romans 7, doesn't it? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That is, if you're truly led by the Spirit, you get out of this antagonistic relationship. It's not a moralistic or a legalistic control of the body. You know, we just try all the harder. I don't think that's what he's describing. Rather, that's disempowering. Paul is describing an exchange of one sort of human subject for another. This is called conversion. This is called new birth. This is called baptism. One passes from an antagonistic self-relation in which spirit and flesh are no longer pitted against one another. And so the eye, you know, he says, I have been, what's the eye that can be crucified or put to death in baptism? Apparently, it's a construct of sin and a subject of the law, and it's not truly part of our essence. It's this, this antagonistic self-relation, I think, that is undone in the death of the eye at baptism. Paul describes, you know, a split, that I, I do what I do not want to do. With one half, the ego is pitted against the other half. I am no longer doing the thing 
that I want, but the sin which dwells within me is doing it. The resolution is not a more vigorous, willful engagement, because that is to invest more completely in the law or in the lie of sin in its orientation to the law. Uh, you know, this is Paul's picture of the ego. This is why psychoanalysts find all of this so interesting. Because this is precisely what Freud discovers. That as man becomes more moralistic, he even has a name for it. He calls, you know, the moral masochism. As we become more moralistic, we become more destructive. Isn't that interesting that Freud names a disease a sickness? I believe after what Paul is describing, and of course in both instances, the idea is if we invest more energetically in this antagonism, no, that's to invest in the lie. Paul says the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Listen to the language here. It's all about antagonism. It's all about a kind of deception. You know, idolatry, sorcery, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. It's all about dividedness, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And things like these of which I forewarn you, just if I've, that those who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you haven't inherited the kingdom of God. You're not in the kingdom of God. You've fallen short. And so what Paul is describing is the fruits of the flesh. They're characterized by this strife, this antagonism that is the natural fruit of this eye that is still alive and needs to be put to death. Put to death the eye, Paul says. And so the, law, the subject of the law you know, is expendable. This eye can die. I've been crucified. Therefore, my brethren, Paul says a very, very similar passage in Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So how, what's Paul's resolution? He doesn't say, oh, more vigorously engage in a moralistic understanding. No, Paul says, die to the law. Change up your subjectivity. I have been crucified with Christ. He says in Romans, you've been joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. You begin to live out the resurrection life. So the picture in both Galatians and Romans is that being joined to Christ suspends or does away with this antagonistic relation. In the love relationship of Christ, and this is what he describes next, the fruits of the Spirit take over. And listen to, listen to the fruits of the Spirit. They're characterized by harmony. They're characterized by fellowship, by union, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then look at the last line here. Against such things there is no law. Paul means this literally. The law is suspended. The law does not apply where these things are practiced. 
In 2.20, those who belong to the Messiah, they've crucified the, the flesh with its passions and desires. So it's not that through strenuous self-effort they're able to do good. Rather, deceitful desire has been exposed and defeated in Christ. And there's a new subject. And Paul says, put on the fruits of the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit, 525. So just as, you know, the, we often get this wrong. I, I, I like our song. I, actually, I, you know, I come to the garden alone. It was one of my favorite songs as a child. I, I'm a little ashamed to tell this story, but when I was about 16, I got all the farm boys in Kansas together and I started my own church. And I got hymnals from the church and I handed them out and I made all the boys sing. And we'd all sing, I come to the garden alone. And, <laughs> and I, I think that I had a wrong understanding of this. And I think there's a kind of wrong understanding in a lot of Christianity. We used to sing a song, and uh, I've heard it in chapel, you know, that lay your head on the breast of Jesus. You can hear his heart beating. This kind of uh, personalized, individualized, Understanding. Let me state this. In, in, there is no personal relationship with Christ. I'm going to qualify it. Don't, don't get excited. There is no personal relationship with Christ removed from the covenantal relationship. You know, with the incarnation, with the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, with the body of Christ. There is no personal relationship with Christ apart from the historical ground provided in the story of Abraham. Relationship in its modern conception, and I think this is our problem with the fruits of the Spirit, we're missing the fact that these are not fruits that, you know, I just go around, I walk into the garden alone, me and Jesus, I have love and joy and peace all by myself. Now, if somebody else comes into the garden, I may have a problem. But that's precisely where we need the fruits of the Spirit. Right? In relationship, in the body of Christ. Uh, So there is no personal relationship with Christ apart from the historical work of Christ and the word of Christ. And so Gnostic or like notions of a kind of ecstatic communion devoid of history, devoid of other people, of content, uh, I think continually bubble up. You know, I want to lay my head on your chest and hear your heart beat for me, beat for me. Oh, Jesus. That's the quote. Uh, I think that, no, I, I think that the way that we hear the heartbeat of Jesus is in and through the word of Scripture, in and through the relationship of the fellowship of the saints. And I don't in any way mean to take away from our time with Christ and our private time. I don't mean to to say that's not true. But what I'm saying is, yes, but you need to have that in conjunction with the fellowship. And so we need to balance those two things. The fruits of the Spirit are relational in both the giving and receiving. We enjoy the fruits of the Spirit in community. So a kind of awe-historical, disembodied spirituality 
those notions of relationship, those notions of love are worthless. They're worse than worthless. They're harmful. Because that's precisely the false teaching, I think, that Paul is combating. A Christianity focused on my personal relationship with Jesus, devoid of the embodied reality of the community of the saints, is Gnosticism. John will call it the Antichrist. It's a disembodied notion that serves to describe the problem more than to address it. Our problem is not that we can't, you know, uh, in some way be alone, but our problem is we can't be with other people. Now, I do think that, in fact, both are our problem. But the way that you're alone successfully is if you can be with other people. And the way that you can be with other people successfully is the idea, yes, that I understand this is part of, this is a personal thing. And so we need both. And so to focus simply on the individualistic, the personal, to the exclusion of the corporate and the embodied, is to return to the antagonism, I think, between body and spirit, which characterizes life under the law. This is the whole point of agape love. You know, this is what Jesus is working out in the Gospels. It's not really. There are the love commandments in the Old Testament, but they're really not central. And Jesus takes them and makes them central. And he develops the understanding of, you know, his own going up to Jerusalem to die on behalf of his friends. His love is a self-sacrificial love for others. Agape love has to do with a, a, a practical, embodied concern for other people. Jesus' teaching, you know, when he washes the disciples' feet, is to be the servant of all. And the church's earthly concern, you know, think of Acts, is with the distribution of food and the finances of the widows. According to Christian tradition, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is describing. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us you know, who indwells us, who writes God's law in our heart, who transforms us. It's by the Holy Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father, that we're related to God, that we bear witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. Let me state it, and this is my conclusion. The Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, is specifically the Spirit who enables us to go on in the same way as Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to have the self-sacrificial love of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to walk as Jesus walked. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us walk by the Spirit. And so the faithfulness of Christ, this was our talk last time, is to be brought about by the power of the Spirit. And so throughout the passage, it's a move from the focus on the individual in isolation. The law isolates to the realization of relatedness. We cry out of a Father. We take up the practices of the fruit of the Spirit, which bind us together. And against such, there is no Let's sing our hymn.